This is Trinity Church of the Vale Valley, loving God, loving people, and living free. Hello, everyone. This is Pastor Ethan. Today is Sunday, January the 15th, 2023. Once again, thank you for joining with me. Today, we are launching back into Colossians. In chapter one, just do a really high-level recap. In chapter one, we went through one of the things, one of the New Testament's great pastoral prayers. We explored also what many scholars view as the New Testament's highest statement of Christology, the proclamation of the divinity, the supremacy, and absolute necessity of Jesus Christ in all things. And then, near the end of chapter one, we saw the incredible promise and profound calling that God has given to his disciples. And this is the calling that about 22 years ago was shown to me in Scripture and to change the trajectory of my own life. This is what Paul says about the church, the body of Christ, right? And you'll remember this if you were with us in, in, in chapter 1, in Colossians 1, verses 25 through 29, we read this. I have become, of course, this is Paul speaking, and he says, I have become its servant, the church's servant, by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations and is now disclosed to the Lord's people. For to them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles, among the world, the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. For he is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. And to this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. Wow. Oh, friends, there is so much there. And we went into that in great depth um, back last, late, late last year when we were going through chapter one. If you missed those sermons, I encourage you to go back and listen to them because that scripture is so profound and so powerful. Now we are diving into chapter two, right? It's going to take probably four, maybe five weeks. As I was reading earlier through the entire chapter, all, through all of chapter two in my study, it brought to mind a commercial that ran a few years ago. And this is going to sound totally random to you, but it was a commercial by Taco Bell. All right, in the commercial, a person has just finished their seven-layer burrito, their crunchy Taco Supreme, and 120-ounce Mountain Dew. And as they stagger from the restaurant, they look into the camera and exclaim, I'm full. Now, my friends, being full, stuffed might be a better word, with a high quality cuisine from Taco Bell might not be the healthiest thing that you could do. But it reminds us that this was the point, the humor in the commercial, that fullness is something we all desire. Right? We don't like being hungry either literally or metaphorically, right? Emptiness is not something we strive for, you know, unless you're trying out Buddhist mysticism. Now, over Christmas, we explored the miracle of the kenosis of Christ, that in coming to live with us, Christ, being God, he emptied himself. That's that word in the Greek, kenosis. He emptied himself. He humbly, he humbled himself in a magnitude that we can scarcely comprehend. And yet, 
as a result of what Christ accomplished through his life, his death, and his resurrection, the New Testament proclaims that in Christ we have been made full. In Christ we are complete. And this is the great theme of Colossians chapter 2, that in Christ we have been brought to fullness. You know, this is also a theme we see throughout the New Testament, most specifically in Ephesians. Just listen to these scriptures as, as we, as we again, just want to give you a glimpse of how we see this broader in the New Testament. I'm going to start, not in Ephesians, but in 1 John chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. And John writes, Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. For no one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. All right, amazing statement. In Ephesians 1, now to Ephesians, Ephesians 1, 22 and 23, Paul says, And God placed all things under Christ's feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. That's, that's an amazing statement. He says, the church, that's you and I, the body of Christ. We are the fullness of Christ in this world. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 13, again, Paul says, So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, listen to this, become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. <laughs> Again, what a statement that is, that we may know. Right? We're not there yet. We're going there. One day we will attain it as we come to full maturity. But God's desire, the journey he has brought us into, is that we would attain to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. And then back one chapter, still in Ephesians, um, chapter 3, verses 17 through 19, this is kind of the second half of Paul's great prayer when he says, And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the Lord's holy people, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, and here it is, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. My friends, this is the truth that we are going to explore, that in Christ we have been given fullness, and in this fullness we have been given great freedom. So with that, let's jump in. And as we begin chapter two, we see Paul confess how he is struggling toward a goal. And we're starting right at the top of the chapter. Paul says, I want you to know how hard I am contending for you. Just, just real quick, this image of contending, that has the idea of struggling, straining. Like It's an athletic image. Everything about Paul is working toward this goal. He says, I want you to know how hard I am contending for you and for those in Laodicea. Now, Laodicea was another community nearby Colossa in the Lycus Valley of ancient Asia Minor. Right? It's modern-day Turkey today. Anyway, for you, I'm I, wanna, I want you to know how hard I am contending for you and for those at Laodicea 
and for all who have not met me personally. My goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love. Let's talk about that for a second. Friends, we see the word heart. He said that you may be encouraged in heart. We, we see this, of course, throughout Scripture. And it's one of those words that just gets constant use in Christian culture. I can remember growing up in the Sunday school and teachers would be talking about believing in Jesus in the terms of asking Jesus into your heart. Now, of course, this is much more than intellectual assent. But it's also more than emotion. See, in Paul's world, this term, it's pretty much the way we think of today as well, but this referred to the deepest core of a person's concept of who they were, their identity, their beliefs, and their character. The heart was not just an emotional place, it was the seat of your concept of self, from which would spring your actions, how you actually lived. So when Paul says, my goal is for you to be encouraged in heart, right? The, the fullness of what he's getting at here is, it's like I'm struggling with all that I have for you to have courage, to be optimistic, to have an active anticipation of Christ's presence and work in your life. And not only this, but that our courage would be rooted in a love for other people, especially the community of believers, and you can go to a lot of churches today and find all sorts of goals. Maybe they'll have it written on a placard out somewhere, you know, goal statements for our church. You know, it might be things like fundraising goals, attendance goals, volunteer goals, baptism goals, conversion goals, right? And these can all be good. But Paul's great goal for the church, at least as he, as he expresses it here, it's not any of those. His goal is that they would be authentically characterized by their deep-seated courage and optimism and their love for each other, both flowing from the maturity of their faith in Christ. And guys, this is where Paul is going. For he declares that the purpose of their courage and love is that they would know and experience full riches and hidden treasures, right? Sounds like a, a, a pirate movie here, right? Full riches and hid, riches and hidden treasures, right? Going on, Paul says, my goal, right, recapping what I just read, my goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love, and then connected to this, he says, so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, and whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In the Greek here, there's this very strong connection between the phrase united in love and the idea of possessing the full riches of complete understanding. The sense here is that not only will a maturing community of faith continually grow in love, but it will also grow in their understanding of the gospel that increasingly leads to the blessing, right, the riches of a firm unshakable conviction of their faith in Christ. See, Paul is describing here this positive reinforcing cycle that will be present in a healthy church. A loving and forgiving community will lead to greater spiritual maturity as people see that evidence of faith. And in turn, greater spiritual maturity will always lead to a greater love and unity. And so, what are the riches that we are to completely understand that Paul's talking about here? Friends, in a word, it is Jesus. Paul describes the riches of complete understanding as 
the mystery of God, which is Christ. And in him, in Christ, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Oh, my friends, this is taking us into, into some deep waters. And so just a few thoughts here. First, it is a great encouragement to us as believers that we do not need to labor searching for spiritual truth and meaning in many, many different places because we have already been given the fullness of spiritual truth in Christ. <laughs> that might not initially strike you, but if you just stop and think about how people, you know, in Hebrews, the author talks about people being tossed about here and there by every wave of understanding, every way of teaching that may come. No, in Christ, we have been given the fullness of spiritual truth. We don't have to go searching anywhere else. Now, again, the Colossian church, to help frame this, the Colossian church had been infiltrated by teachers who were saying something along the line of, Jesus isn't enough. You need all this additional special knowledge, special traditions. Then you can really know God. And again, Paul says, no, Christ is enough. Everything we need to know to know God, to have peace with God and live in the presence and goodness of God is given to us in Jesus. And this is a great source of comfort. But friends, at the same time, Paul's words stand as a challenge to us, as they mean that we will always have further to go. We will always have more to learn as we explore the depths of these riches, the mystery of the spiritual inheritance of new life that we have received in Christ. Or right, you remember where Paul says, listen, it's not like I have arrived. It's not like I know everything. I am not, I've not yet been made complete, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Right, we always have more to learn. And friends, one more thing we see here, and this is essential for us to remember, right? So, so important. The Christian scholar N.T. Wright, you've probably heard of N.T. Wright, um, one of the principal commentaries I'm using in my studies through Colossians is Wright's commentary. Anyway, he points out that the primary thrust of this passage that we just read is that everything we might want to know about God and God's purposes should first be answered through the lens of the life, the character, the gospel, the death and resurrection of Jesus. You see, Scripture is full of many different teachings, images, and stories that reveal many different, and honestly would say sometimes seemingly disparate, right, images of God, things about God, His nature, and His purposes. And the point here is that when we look to these sources of truth about God, Scripture, or maybe just how we would look around the world, and when we wrestle with interpreting Scripture, we are, even if we aren't cognizant of it, we do so through different lenses. Or we have filters. I mean, you think of a, you know, of a camera. You, you, know, you put a blue light filter on it. That changes the, all the way that you see the image. You're looking through the, the, you're looking through the lens. Um, the seminary term for this is the idea of a hermeneutic. It is a lens. It is a, a perspective through which we see and interpret Scripture. Just a few examples. Because if you've had any formal biblical training, you've been taught the importance of the lens of other scripture. Right? When, what does Paul mean when he says here? Right? We're going to interpret that through the lens of the full testimony of the word of God. Okay? 
You've heard me say that over the years. When we consider, for example, the teaching of Jesus in the Gospels, we also consider the teaching of Paul about grace and faith, right? Jesus points to that, but it is Paul who fully brought that to life in, in Scripture. Another lens we have is the lens of context, be it cultural context, literary context, or the context of the events that were surrounding the writing, in the case of Paul, of his letters. You know, for some people, for many people actually, the primary lens through which they see and interpret Scripture is a doctrinal lens, a doctrinal perspective. A good example of this is the concept of dispensationalism. Okay, I'm not going to go into that. If you have no clue what that means, we can talk about it later. Also, another lens is the lens of historical understanding, how the church over the years, over the centuries, have seen and interpreted Scripture. Parallel to this is the idea of tradition, right? Much more recent in all of our lives, you may see your tradition, your lens may be, right, the teaching of your favorite teacher, your favorite Christian, you know, theologian or your favorite preacher. Okay, but friends, here, and not just here, but in many places in his writings, Paul tells us in dramatic language that when we consider God, his nature and his purposes, his relationship to humanity and humanity's relationship to God, the primary lens that we look through, the limitless source we explore is Jesus Christ. As we said back in the fall, if we construct an image of God and he doesn't look like Jesus, we've missed something. But now, moving on, Paul expresses his warmth and love for the Colossian believers. And he says something that, you know, that people say all the time, believers, non-believers alike, right, really to the point of this being kind of a huge cliche. But as it turns out, in Christ, this isn't a cliche at all. And now we're in verses 4 and 5, and Paul says, I tell you all of this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. And friends, we're going to come back to that later. In verse 5 then, he says, For though I am absent from you in the body, I am present with you in spirit. And I delight to see how disciplined you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. So Paul is delighted, or he is filled with joy to hear about the firmness of the Colossians' faith. And he says that even though he is absent in body, he is present with them in spirit. Absent in body and present in spirit. And friends, hear me. This isn't just sentiment. I mean, we say this all the time. We want to, I'm talking to my mom on the phone, or maybe she says to me, you know, I, I wish I could be there with you, but I'm, I'm with you in spirit. But as believers, that's not just sentiment. You know, one of the great New Testament themes is that through faith in Christ, we have entered into union, right? Union with God and union with Christ. In 1 Corinthians 6, 17, Paul tells us, whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. And friends, our oneness with Christ is not just about us as individuals, it is a foundation of who we are as a community, as brothers and sisters in Christ. We are one with each other, spiritually. Listen to how this is described in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. Paul says, So be humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit 
through the bond of peace, right? The unity of the Spirit. For there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. Church, this is the miracle that as fellow believers, we share a common source of life. We share a union among us that is greater than any of the other unions or partnerships that we will experience in this life. You know, and this also gets really practical because we are present to each other in spirit. If we view our relationships with fellow believers through that lens in this way, it will lead us to pray for each other more than we do, right? Sincerely, to love each other, to relate to each other with kindness, patience, forgiveness, to always be seeking to build each other up. Not only that, but to contend for each other, to advocate for each other in word and prayer when not in person. Friends, make no mistake, we are called to be part of the gathered church. Scripturally, there's no such thing as a lone ranger Christian. And by the way, also, the primary context of our faith, right, through through the teaching of the New Testament, the primary context of our faith is corporate, not personal. However, there will be times when we are separate physically, but we are never separated spiritually. Okay. Friends, <laughs> having described the spiritual treasures and riches that we have received in Christ, Paul now makes a statement that is central to the entire letter. He has said, Christ is our source of life, and just as you have received Christ as your life, just as you have received Christ as your Lord, so continue to live. Verses 6 and 7, Paul says, So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. Oh, my friends, the importance of this cannot be understated. So let's just think about it for a moment. What are the attributes, the realities of how we entered into faith in Christ, right? How we received Jesus as Lord. Or what comes to mind? Well, immediately, the idea of faith, where we had some understanding of the gospel in our mind, and with whatever knowledge we had, even if it was very, very small, prompted by the Spirit, we took a step of faith. We received Christ as Lord through faith. And part of that faith was a step of surrender, right? Laying down, right? It's not about me anymore. Also, and this is absolutely central, we received as, we received Christ as Lord by grace. It was all about God's grace. Nothing we could do to deserve it. It was nothing we achieved. We had nothing to bring to him except really our own our faith and our brokenness. Had nothing to do with our moral performance. Now Christ would come to impact us morally, make no mistake, but when we took that step of faith, It was just as we were. Remember the old hymn, some of you? Just as I am, without one plea. Just as I am, just as we were, we came to Christ and we received his gift. Also, 
Part of how we came to receive Christ as Lord is through the idea, the concept of dependence. You know, life used to be all about me, dependent upon me and what I could do myself. But now I am trusting in God and he, not me, is my source. And friends, it was with the idea, even very simply, that I was leaving behind the old person I had been and was entering into a new life. And this new life came with it, a new way of life. Now, I wasn't just intellectually assenting to a truth. I was being made into a new person. And this would impact how I thought, how I lived, my mind, my emotions, and my will, my choices. One last thought. Friends, when we received Christ Jesus as Lord, it means that we knew in our core that we were accepted, valued, and loved. And so God says to us, this is how you received Christ Christ as Lord, and so continue to live in this way. As you received Christ, continue to live. Friends, even years later, as a disciple of Jesus, living in the midst of life as it really is. Right, think of your life. Maybe you've been a believer just a short time, maybe for many, many years, but you're a disciple of Jesus in the midst of your life right now as it really is. Do we live by faith in the presence, the power, and the goodness of God? Do we live surrendered to the goodness and leadership of Christ through his word and by his spirit? Right? Do we live and a humble dependence upon God's grace, where we know our acceptability and our value and our meaning to God, right? It wasn't about us then, and it's not about us now, right? Do we live as if we truly are a new person, a new creation, because we are? And do we live as if we are in our core, accepted, valued, and loved? And do we then extend that kind of life to the people around us? To put it in one phrase, friends, you have been saved by the loving grace of God. So continue to live in the loving grace of God. Paul continues on to say that we are rooted and built up in him. As you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live rooted and built up in him. Now, quick note here. Friends, the verb tense of rooted, that is something that is done, right? It was a point in time. It is accomplished. It's something, excuse me, it is something that happened once and its effect continues on. We have been planted, rooted by God in our relationship with Christ, and that continues to be our foundation. Now, in contrast to this, the phrase built up has the tense of something that is continuing. It's ongoing. We are always continually being built up and strengthened in our faith. And this is a journey that will continue all the days of our life. And because we are rooted and because we are being built up and strengthened, as we live in Christ the same way we received Christ, the result will be overflowing gratitude. You know, if you've ever asked yourself, you know, am I growing in my relationship with Jesus? You know, one powerful way to evaluate that, one powerful answer will be, am I thankful? 
Do I have a heart of gratitude? As I look around the world, as I look at my own life, when I get up in the morning, engage the day, do I do so through a lens and through a genuine sense of gratitude? And friends, the same question can be asked about the health of a church. So, to wrap up today, friends, as we continue to live in the grace of God, with Christ as our Lord, Paul says, don't be taken captive. In verse 8, he says, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. And back in verse 5, we heard Paul say, I tell you this, I tell you all these things, so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. Don't be deceived. Don't be fooled and taken captive. My friends, this is one of the primary themes of the letter of Colossians. And as there is much that needs to be said about this, we will go there next week. Church, again, I love you. Thank you for joining with me today. Have a wonderful week, and we'll see you next Sunday.